Have you ever bid on any public sector training contracts? Are you currently a training supplier to local or state or national or maybe federal government organizations? My guest today is Peter Smith, previously Procurement Director for the UK's Department of Social Security. And Peter also held senior positions in procurement for organizations such as NatWest Group, which is a financial services provider in the UK. And Peter is the author or co-author of four books on the subject, including Buying Professional Services, How to Get Value for Money from Consultants and Other Professional Service Providers. So if you're wondering about the title... Peter's been on both sides of the fence. Peter has been a supplier or a consultant to government on the subject of procurement. But Peter's also been in the trenches helping organizations in the public sector to buy services from people like you and me. So if you want to hear from an expert who advises government bodies on how to buy training and consulting from people like you and me, you're going to learn loads today. In fact, there's so much that there are two parts to this episode this week. Peter's going to focus on a couple of key things, including what is procurement, um, what is an RFP or request for proposal, uh, what training companies can find out about the kinds of training contracts available to us from government, and where you can find them too, how to pitch yourself in the right way, um, how to understand the requirements, and to understand exactly whether it's worth applying. And next week, in part two of this episode, we'll be looking at what you would need to have in place before you're in a position to apply for contracts from government or public sector bodies, the stages of the procurement process, how competitive it is to sell consulting or training to bodies like government and federal authorities, how important price is, and the kinds of skills needed to understand and to tender or bid on a contract. This is the Training Business Podcast. Hey, and welcome to the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Every week, we bring you exciting news and interviews with training business experts and training business entrepreneurs from around the world. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. Here's your host, Mark Garrett-Hayes. Hey, welcome to the show. My name is Mark. It's my pleasure again this week to bring you an episode of the podcast that is for people like you and me. If you're someone who's not been on this podcast before, welcome. This is the show for people who sell their services, their expertise as trainers, as consultants, as coaches. If that's someone like you, you're in the right place. If this is not your first time here, welcome back. It's wonderful to know that you're listening again this week. The goal of this episode, in fact, every episode of the show is threefold. It's to help you to start to grow and, of course, to scale your business. And every single week we have guests on the show or it's just an episode where it's you and I on a subject which will help you wherever you are on your journey as a facilitator, a coach, a trainer, or a consultant, in fact, someone who is making a living doing what you love to do. And if you're someone just like me who almost cannot believe that he or she is paid to do what they love to do, which to me is training and helping people, then this is exactly the show for you. So every single Thursday, without fail, there is an episode of this show on your podcast platform of choice, whether it's Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and so many other platforms, I can't even begin to count them. So thank you for your time today. And without further ado, let's dive into 
this week's episode. Before I begin, of course, I should remind you that there are two parts to this episode, part one today and part two next week. So please subscribe. That way you'll understand and know when episodes of the show, including this one, come out on your podcast platform of choice. Peter, hi, welcome to the show. Thank you. Delighted to be here, Mark. So we had a little bit of trouble recording this episode. So this is this is a take two. Um, so let, let's begin with your expertise, because as I've I mentioned in the intro, you've written a couple of books on the subject of procurement. And what's really helpful is that you have been on both sides of the fence, so to speak. You've been a consultant, but before that, you've worked for a number of years working in procurement, which is, I'll let you define procurement, um, but you're able to help us today by highlighting what uh, organizations that buy training and consulting from the marketplace look for. Let's begin with that. What exactly is procurement? Procurement is simply buying done at, at a corporate level. So um, big companies, government organizations, um, anybody but individuals really buy stuff. And uh, because procurement sounds more impressive than buying or purchasing, we used to call it purchasing at the beginning of my career. And then we decided procurement sounded a bit uh, a bit more fancy. Um, but that's all it is, really. It's buying the goods and services organizations need to survive. And I started my career with Mars Confectionery, buying literally raw materials to make Mars bars and packaging. I was then procurement director in a big government department and a big financial services group. Um and in those organizations, it's obviously not about buying raw materials. It's about buying technology services, consulting services, training services, some equipment and furniture and facilities management and so on. Um, but it's a mix of goods and services. And then I did a lot of consulting, uh, a lot of it in the public sector, uh, ran a website for a few years and then started writing books about procurement. So um, uh, many, many years uh, in the area anyway. And you had a team as well. You had a team of, of associates working for you, right? Yeah, well, I mean, as a procurement director, obviously, I had at one stage 200 people working for me buying. Um, but then when I set up my own consulting business, I, I never wanted to be a KPMG, to be honest. So it was mainly a vehicle for what I was doing. Um, but because I had a good relationship with part of government, uh, and I could sort of facilitate something that worked for both sides. Um, I ended up with a team of, of generally pretty experienced sort of retired procurement directors and so on who did a lot of work in government through my firm. So for a couple of years, we were a, a seven-figure turnover company, at least on the consulting side. Fantastic. And for a lot of people, I'm sure, listening to this are like me. We have probably, I would say, uh, in terms of balance, most of us would be suppliers to corporations or, or the corporate private sector. Not so many of us may be familiar with what's involved in supplying governments, states, uh, local bodies. So the process, as I understand it, and, and feel free to correct me, is begins with some kind of RFP or RFI. What exactly do those acronyms mean, RFP, RFI? Yeah, we, we love acronyms in procurement, I have to say. So uh, RFI is Request for Information, uh, and that's usually at the first stage of a procurement process where somebody wants to buy something and they want to find out more about suppliers or the market or even the product they're buying, or the services they're buying. So they put something out that may be no more than a request saying, hey, Peter, tell me a bit about your firm and what you do. 
or it could be something much more structured with 10 or 20 or 30 questions. RFP, request for proposal, uh, is, is more formal. That's actually asking you generally, how would you do this work for me? Uh, I, I need this form of training delivered to 500 people around the country. Um, how would you do that for me? How long would it take? How much would it cost? Etc. It's a proposal. And those proposals would generally then be evaluated in some way, which could be formal or informal, uh, in order to choose a supplier or suppliers. Um, but the process depends very much on how much is being spent usually, I should say. So if someone's looking for you know, a one-day training course, that's not going to be the same process as, let's say, the UK Ministry of Defence outsourcing all its non-military training, which I think it did a few years ago, which was a multi, multi-million pound contract. So a lot of this stuff might be huge. And from the sound of things, many of us may not be eligible or at least um, experienced enough or large enough to be in 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 the game. So in other words, we might be too small for some of these contracts. In fact, that it often is the case. What about the kinds of contracts that we can, as, as small business owners, be eligible for or suitable for? Where can we go about finding listings for training contracts, uh, you know, that kind of thing for, from the public sector? Yeah, and, and you hit on a very good point there. I'd certainly recommend anybody listening to be realistic. So you, you've, if you're one person or even 10 people, you're not going to win that Ministry of Defence contract. But there are local town councils, city councils, regional. There are local universities, maybe, or colleges, uh, hospitals, medical organisations. So there are a lot of smaller organisations that will have some large contracts but they will also be buying training and many other services uh, in a relatively ad hoc way with smaller contracts from time to time. So for the bigger contracts, uh, most governments now have some sort of open online advertising service. So England has something called Contracts Finder. Uh, there are certainly equivalents in many other European countries. Uh, Ukraine actually had a really or has a really good system. Um, in some countries like Germany and the US, uh, a lot more money actually is spent at, at state level than central government. So different states may have um, platforms, databases, whatever you want to call it. So find find out what those those bigger platforms and databases are. The EU has something called um, Tenders Electronics Daily, Electronic Daily, TED, uh, which advertises all big contracts around the EU. Um, and then if you're looking for smaller local opportunities, just start with the website of whoever you might be targeting. So if it's a local university or your local town council, have a look at their website. There may well be a section talking about procurement and there may well be a section saying, here are some opportunities we've got for suppliers at the moment. Um, what I would say is very small contracts are often not advertised. So, so don't forget the sort of um, lead generation and sales process you would do for the private sector. You, you know, if you're looking at a contract that maybe is is under ten thousand pounds or ten thousand dollars or euros, um, that may well be done pretty informally. It may not be advertised. The buyer may, according to the the local uh, policy, they may have to get two quotes or three quotes, but they may not have to go out in an open fashion. So building relationships and trying to get to the people who you think might actually want to buy your services 
um, does have value in the public sector as well as the private sector. It's not all advertised. It's not all terribly formal at that lower level, I would say. I think a lot of people are um, often put off by the the possibility, and it's happened to me when I've um, bid on on training for the public sector. I, I suspected I was part of a lineup where um, I was really one of the providers being asked to provide a quote, but a decision had been made. Now, I could never prove that, but I felt afterwards someone said to me, that's often what happens. Is that true? Do, do our private um, businesses brought in to sort of make up the numbers so someone can say, yes, we've had three quotes from training companies and that's therefore we follow the process? Yes, Yes, I, I, I'm afraid it does happen. It, <laughs> yeah, let's be honest. Um, it, it doesn't happen all the time. And, and I had the same problem, uh, running my consulting business. Um, and I, I, w- I worked for a consulting firm for a while before I went out on my own. And, um, you know, I remember putting a lot of effort into one bid actually with a big bank and really feeling we'd done a great job and, and just having the bid totally dismissed by the by the procurement director um who i knew personally as well but that didn't help in that case um and in retrospect i think you know he was already in bed with kpmg or mckinsey or whoever it was he he went with um it's hard to know as as you and most of the listeners will know you can you can ask the question you can say have you had this sort of work done before uh, have you used other firms for this work? I mean, don't be afraid of asking those things and, and qualify um, the potential as as you would probably in, in the private sector. But, um, yeah, it's difficult to know. I mean, if it comes out of the blue, if you've had no contact at all with an organisation and, and they, they literally reach out to you, I think you should absolutely investigate that because you may well be, be being set up. On the other hand, they might have read something you published on LinkedIn and thought it was the most amazing insight they've ever seen. So, so try and find out why they've come to you. I think is the advice. Yeah, and I suppose after a while, we'll we'll learn on the basis of instinct. Is this thing perhaps so late in the process that it doesn't sound like it's a realistic time frame within which to prepare? And it's happened to me at least once where, you know, I feel, hang on a sec, this is uh, you're asking for a proposal by next week. Um, what's going on? Yeah, that's, that's a really good indicator that it's a stitch up. Actually, that's a good point. Um, I mean, it's relative to the size of the, the contract, because if it's a, you know, if they've gone out for a quick three quotes on a, on a 20,000 pound contract, then maybe saying next week is absolutely fine. But, but I've seen multi, multi million pound consulting contracts and other contracts coming out and being advertised with a week or 10 days notice. And you just think, well, that's ridiculous. And somebody knows about this already and somebody is lined up to respond to this. Right. So <laughs> that's, that's, uh, you, you might want to go for it because it might be an experience, uh, which you can learn from. The one positive about the, the public sector process, which can seem very tedious is it, 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 it is done generally in a structured, manner where they're trying to be unbiased. And I have seen cases, I've been on the buy side, where there has been very much a favoured supplier. And somebody has come through in the bidding process who maybe wasn't as well known, and has just put in such a brilliant bid, and and just has had maybe the combination of what looks like great quality and experience, great service, whatever, and a good price, and has won it. you know, I, I, I won't mention it. I worked on 
one huge project with uh, a very, very well-known large broadcasting organisation, and uh, everybody knew who was going to win. It was going to be British listeners will know know them well. It was bound to be Capita. They had to win it. The, the giant in the room. Capita. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, they won the pilot program for this this big big contract. There was actually a pilot in one region. So you know they'd won the pilot. How could they possibly lose? And they lost. And another supplier won and did an absolutely brilliant job. Actually, it does happen then. So wh- where do we start? There is an RFP. There's something which comes from a body and they're looking for training providers. We've got to read and understand the requirements. Uh, what do those documents typically look like? Um, well, for anything other than a, a very small contract, you're going to have a whole series of questions that are qualification questions. And sometimes this may mean that if you don't answer those properly, the rest of your bid doesn't even get read, which is a horrible situation, actually. Um, but those qualification questions are going to cover things like, can you tell me about your financial situation? It, it's okay if you're a, a new company, you can explain that and you can provide some sort of assurance that you're genuine. Um, but if you've been going a while, they'll want to see some sort of accounts. They'll want you to make statements, and I know this sounds silly, but to say that you're not run by a bunch of criminals, for instance. <laughs> um, they're going to ask you whether you have a modern slavery policy, certainly UK public sector. Uh, and the correct answer to that is not no. Um, that will get you kicked out of the process. So, you know, so it's if, yes. you, if you do, <laughs> if you generally these, well, you've got to read them carefully because of course, if the question is, uh, are your directors criminals? The correct answer is no. Um, but give the right answers. And if you don't have a modern slavery policy, download one from the internet. If you don't have a health and safety policy, download one. You may well need some insurance depending on what, what the work is. Um, so these are the sort of qualification things. And there may well, there may well be a question about references. And that could be actually in the qualification section, or that could be something that is actually marked as part of the, the, the questions that actually determine who's going to win the contract. And references are really powerful. Um, I think public sector almost more so than private because the public sector does tend to be risk averse. So evidence that you've done this before. And even better if it's for another vaguely similar body is really, really important. So if you, if you're bidding to do work for, I, I don't know, a council in London and you can say, we did something vaguely similar to this for another council, the other side of London. And here's a paragraph that their head of procurement or head of training, head of HR wrote saying what a great job we did. It, you know, that, that really does matter. And I've, I've even advised people in the past in, in areas like, like consulting and, and training. Um, if they're trying to break into the public sector, it might even be worth thinking about doing something pro bono. Um, and if you, I don't know, if you have a, a, a great workshop that's something a bit innovative and different, um, maybe offering a day or a couple of days to your local council or a university or school or whoever your target is. Um, and doing it for nothing, but saying what I'd like in return, assuming you think it's worthwhile and you get something out of it, is that you'll be a reference when I bid for other other work. Um, that that you know it can be worth it for a day or two's work, quite honestly. So the principle will hold true whether you're in whether you're in Mumbai right now listening to this, or Brisbane, or Austin, or, or Philadelphia. There are public sector bodies everywhere. 
they they run the state, they run the city, they run the the town, and 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 they need training. Their people need training. It's different in different countries. I mean, the the US, of course, the whole health system is privatized, so that's not government; that's private sector. Some countries spend more through the public sector. You know, some of the European countries sort of the public sector is half of GDP. Um, so even more opportunities. Um, but yeah, and my, my observation, uh, and I haven't worked all around the world or anything, but I, I've done some consulting work in a few different countries and I haven't seen anything radically different. You know, the aspects of, um, the public sector being concerned about transparency, trying to do the right things, being a bit, bit process bound at times, being pretty risk averse. You know, I've seen that in the US, I've seen it in the UK, I've seen it in Denmark, Portugal. Um, so I, I don't think it varies too much globally, to be honest. So why don't we do this? Why don't we remind people of the role of procurement? Uh, the people, the organizations, the departments that produce these requests for proposal or RFIs, what is their job? Their, their job as people, I suppose, is to be, is to not make mistakes, um, their their role is to bring in providers whom they can rely on, who will not make them look uh, foolish. Um, how else, as someone who's been spent years in procurement, how would you define your role? Well, in, in most cases, the thing to realise is procurement is not the budget holder. There may be a few exceptions in, in different organisations, but we are usually working to to help and support and work alongside the head of HR Um I mean, actually, when I was at Mars and I was buying raw materials, it was my budget, but I really had to work alongside the factory manager to make sure that my skim milk powder made made nice Mars bars. You know, um, so we're all always working alongside internal colleagues, really. Um, and then the role varies a bit. So in a in a smaller organisation, you may have a small procurement team. You may only have one person, so they could be covering a wide range of goods and services. So in, in a small services business, somebody might be buying training one day, cleaning services the next day, some new furniture the next day, and so on. So in those situations, they're not going to get deeply into understanding the training services market. They're going to be helping the budget holder go through some sort of process to try and make sure they choose the right supplier. And that's a supplier who, as you say, can be relied on, who's going to bring good value, maybe bring some innovation, something different. Um, doesn't let the company down, doesn't bring external risks, you know, doesn't bring reputational risk to the company, hence asking whether the directors are criminals. You know. um, in a bigger company, when I was procurement director for the NatWest Group... Which is a large financial services company for people who perhaps don't know that, yeah? Yeah, it used to be probably larger than it is now. Um, and, and we had investment banking, we had credit card business, we had private banking, et cetera, et cetera. So... I had about a hundred procurement people. So I had one person for whom training services was probably more than 50% of his responsibility. So I would expect him to really get into understanding the training market pretty much as well as the HR person in charge of training did. You know, I would see them as a little team and my guy had to know what the requirements were, who the providers were, different ways of buying training, how to measure effectiveness, all of that sort of thing. So as a provider, it's really worth trying to trying to know if you start dealing with someone in procurement, where do they fall on that spectrum? Do they really want to get into what you're doing? Do they want to be educated? Do they want to be close to the detail? 
Or really, is this one of 20 things in their inbox and they just want you to follow some instructions and just go through and, and they're just running a process? And, and frankly, it's probably the budget holder will make the decision, but procurement will make sure it's sort of done properly and a decent contract's put into place and so on. Um, at the other extreme, NatWest, I would expect my guy to have been closely involved in choosing the, the providers and, as I say, lo looking for future innovation, looking at where the market's going and so on. So it varies a lot by organisation, public and private sector. So procurement, literally, to, to your point you made, which is a really great point, they're not necessarily the person who has the financial purse strings, but but they are the people who would make an informed decision. And that, I suppose, for many of us as trainers is frustrating because it, it's just like a lot of bureaucracy. Why am I not talking about training? This person is not talking about training. They're focused on things like uh, minimizing reputational risk and... and uh, and and payment time uh, timelines and insurance and all these things the, the kind of things which are form filling all that tedious form filling stuff and and some you know some some of it can be tedious but um certainly in bigger organizations the sort of thing we'd be looking at is saying well if one part of natwest had actually paid a training provider to develop a particular training course. That's great. And, and maybe we paid, you know, 30, 30K for the development, and then there would be a, a daily fee or a per-person fee for delivery. That's all fine. Okay, if another part of NatWest wants similar training, I don't expect to pay the 30K again for development because I've paid you for that once. Now, now that sounds obvious, but frankly, I have, <laughs> I've absolutely seen that happen where you haven't had a, a boring procurement person putting a proper contract in place, managing that contract, checking when somebody else wants to use that, that firm that it's being done properly and so on. Um, so yeah, so some of this looks tedious and, and let's, let's be honest. I won't defend my profession. There are people in procurement who just, who just love the bureaucracy and the form filling, but most of us, want to want to choose great suppliers to help our companies we want the internal budget holders to be delighted with the assistance we've given them and that we've helped them to choose a, a brilliant training services provider you know that that's what that's what makes us happy <laughs> most of us anyway what you've just said reminded me of someone um for a, a company in san francisco and this one person was holding up this training contract it was the smallest of things at least to my mind but because she was a by the numbers person there was a box that had to be filled hadn't been filled and this thing wasn't moving forward it, it took a little uh, a bit of um let's call it psychology to work with someone else on the team to get this person to come around so it can be a trying process uh it can be a worthwhile process so next week in, in part two of this we're going to look at um the stages of the procurement process and how important price is and maybe the kinds of skills you might need help with in in writing a, a proper bid or, or a tender to be uh, eligible for this because it's a competition at the end of the day, right? Yeah. Okay, Peter, thank you so much for being my guest today on the show. Thanks, Mark. My thanks to Peter for being my guest today, and please come back again next week for part two of this episode. And as I said before, the music every single Thursday without fail, there is an episode of the podcast on your platform of choice, so please subscribe. It costs nothing and, of course, validates what I and James and Sam do every week to bring you an episode. But please tell others about the show because this helps to spread the word. 
If you've got some questions on any aspect of your business, you can drop me a line. My email address is mark at trainingbusiness.com. That's mark at trainingbusiness.com. So until this time next week, take care. Bye for now. once more for listening to this episode of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. See you next time.